Well, if you have your copy of the Bible, uh, I would like to ask you to take Mark, uh, take it, turn to the book of Mark, chapter 12, and we will today look together uh, at, uh, Lord willing, verses 13 through 17 together. Uh, isn't it good that I can drop things and pick them up? Isn't it good for us to be together? It's good to be here. It's good to come together and start the service with children. Beyond that, teenagers and adults that gather together. And the reason they gather together is to say, Christ has called me to himself. I didn't deserve it at all. But he has done everything and brought me to himself. And he will see me all the way through. Isn't that good? Isn't it good just to come together and love one another? To love God and, and to love one another is a very, very good thing. I want to, uh, to also look backwards to last week. Many of you were here last week and uh, you, were, you stayed for the, the church conference and uh, the uh, recommendation from the bylaws revision committee uh, failed, didn't, didn't pass. Well, I want you to know just to... Just to communicate to you that that will be going back to the committee. They'll be working again uh, to see maybe if, if changes need to be made and we'll be bringing you something in the near future. But let me say this, that as for right now, we're we, we still have a document. We have the ultimate document. We have the word of God, don't we? And we will. We will go forward. Uh, from this day, looking to know all that we can about the Lord Jesus Christ, looking to know all that we can and, and to know God as much as we can. And I couldn't be more excited to be pastor of this church and to, to look to the days ahead. I can't wait to see what God has for us in the future. Amen. Amen. So with that said, let's go. Let's go forward. Let's look at Mark chapter 12. Verses 13 through 17 together. Let's read this together. Beginning in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we come to your word, God, that you would speak through me. God, you've called me here to open the word of God and to preach and teach not what I want to preach or teach or what is bugging me. But God, you have written your word and you have given it to us. And you have given me the command to preach the word in season and out of season when it's popular and when it's not popular. And God, this morning, I pray for a holy boldness 
I pray, God, that you would fill my words. God, that you would take my words. God, that you would open hearts, open minds, open our ears. God, not just so that we would hear and have something to discuss or debate. But God, so that it would change us to the very core of who we are. God, we are sinners. We need the gospel. Those of us who are who are already saved, we still need the gospel today. The gospel is what will carry us all the way through. And God, I pray that we would get a bigger understanding of that. And God, there are those who are here today that are lost. They are dead in their sins. And God, that's not popular today, but God, it is the truth. There are those in this room who, though they walked in physically, they are spiritually dead. And God, I pray that you, in your sovereignty, would breathe life on those that you will, and God, that you would call them to yourself, they would repent, and they would place their faith in Christ alone today. God, would you do it for your glory, your glory alone. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been walking through the book of Mark. and We have been in Mark for some time now. We've taken breaks here and there, but we've walked through Mark. And one of the things that we have seen as we walk through verse by verse by verse is that Jesus is demonstrating in his coming and identifying with us fully human in every way, except as a sinner. He is demonstrating that even there he is sovereign. He has authority over demons and sickness and all sorts of I mean, you name it, whatever it is. He has authority over it because he is the very son of God. He is preeminent. He is of most importance. But ever since the beginning of his earthly ministry, ever since ever since he came in and began to teach and preach and to heal, cast him out of the temple, there has been a group that has dogged him at every step. They have looked to discredit him and they want him to go away. That brings us up to where we are today. Over the next six months or so, I hope to finish out the book of Mark in the next six months or so. There will be a few breaks here and there for going through the Christmas season and and all of that. But we will stay the course and we will finish this book. And over those next six months, we're going to see we're going to see the passion. Of the hatred toward Jesus intensify, and we will see the passion of our God to redeem a people to himself intensify to the greatest degree culminating in Christ on the cross. And so this is exciting stuff that we're walking through. Today we look and we see them come together wanting to take him out. The title today of the sermon is When God Gets in the Way. When God gets in the way. Well, let's look at this together. Verse 13 says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians. First question we must ask ourselves in this text is, who are they? Who are they? Well, the they there refers to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling body in Israel. It was made up of Pharisees, mostly Sadducees, and then also the scribes and the high priest. There were 71, counting the high priest, that made up this group. And they were meeting behind closed doors in secret, Wanting to get rid of him. We ended in this previous section in verse 12 with them understanding the parable that he told. He told it about them 
And they were so angry, they wanted to seize him and take him there. They wanted to kill him with their own bare hands, but they were afraid of the people and they couldn't. And so what they had to do is they had to meet in secret and develop a plan to rid themselves of Jesus. They reveal in these verses in 13 and 14 just what it is that has got them so upset. First off, Jesus was teaching things that were contrary to their teachings and traditions. Notice I said to their teachings and traditions. Jesus never taught anything contrary to the the word of God. Jesus quoted the Old Testament, which was their Bible in that day, more than anyone. He knew it better than anyone and quoted it often. He never teaches anything contrary to what God has already spoken through the prophets. But they are upset because he is teaching and preaching a message that is contrary to theirs. See, their message was religion can save you. Religion can make you right with God. And Jesus comes and he deconstructs that. He tears it apart and says there is no religion on the planet or in the heart or the mind of man that can make you right with God. You are sinful. You are dead in your sins and trespasses. Unless God acts in your life, unless he steps into human history in the sending of his son and absorbs the wrath of this God for your sin and then causes him to be raised from the dead and then calls you to himself and you turn from your sins and place your faith in Christ alone, you have no hope. None whatsoever. This was this infuriated them. Also, they say in verse 13, I believe it is, or verse 14, they say to him, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God, but you do not care about anyone's opinion. You are not swayed by appearances. What they're saying is, Jesus, you should respect us. Don't you know who we are? We are the Sanhedrin. We are the 70 plus one that rule Israel. Who are you, an untrained man, coming in to tell us we don't have the authority we think we do? You are not swayed by appearances. And isn't this the case often? When someone comes in and does not respect Positions that have long been held as positions of authority, those that are in those positions, don't they usually get angry? It had been three years since Jesus drove out the money changers the first time. Their anger was kindled that day and it had been steadily stoked ever since. He had to go. So, in verse 14, verse 13 and 14, they had to trap him. They had to trap him in his talk, the Bible says. The word trap there, this is the only place that that particular word in that language is used. And it means to catch like an animal, to set a trap for your prey. This is, this is the thought process of this group. They see him as an animal that is a threat and they must catch him and exterminate him. And it says they sent this Delegation to trap him specifically in his talk. In doing this, hang with me, in doing this, they are acting just like their father, the devil. Because the, their, their father, the devil, 
That's where he always begins his attack is at the word of God. Don't you remember in the garden when Eve was tempted by the serpent, by the devil himself? Don't you remember what he said when she said, we are forbidden to eat of this tree, not even touch it lest we die? The serpent said to her, did God really say that? Has he really said that? And that's where he always attacks is at the word of God. And so they want to trap Jesus to get rid of him in his words at the level of God's word. So God was in their way. Let's look just at three things that God or these people will do when God gets in their way. Number one, people will make unlikely alliances. In verse 13 The Bible says some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians were sent. Now, if you don't know anything about the Pharisees and the Herodians, this doesn't seem all that odd. They send this delegation of these two different groups, Pharisees and Herodians. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal was the Herodians and the Pharisees couldn't be any more different. The Pharisees were very religious. The Herodians were not religious at all. The Pharisees were very committed to Israel. The Herodians were very committed to Rome. The Pharisees were concerned with the law of God. The Herodians were concerned with the law of Rome. The Pharisees hated the Herodians because they had sold their souls to Rome. The Herodians were, were, were Jews who had sold themselves out to support the Herodian family. In the Roman government. So these two were at odds. They they would not have come together on a lot of agreements. You would not have walked into the Starbucks there in Jerusalem and seen these two sitting together. They would not be discussing anything in a pleasant way. But here they come together. Why? Why did the Sanhedrin, this ruling body, send these two particular groups, a group even from outside of their ranks? Why did they send them together? Well, it becomes obvious as you see the story play out. The Herodians had something that the Pharisees nor the Sanhedrin had. They had no in route to Rome. Rome didn't have to listen to them. They were subject to Rome. The problem that the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin had with Jesus was one of theology. It was what he believed and taught about God. Well, Rome was never going to execute. They were never going to kill anyone for what they taught about God. They wouldn't do it. There was no possibility of that. So they needed some way to convince Rome that Jesus was leading a rebellion. And so they developed a plan to come and ask a very pointed, very specific question. Should we pay the tax that Caesar requires or shouldn't we? And they invited along this group, the Herodians, who had a direct in route to Rome. People who see God as being in their way will create unlikely alliances. That's why they asked Jesus this question. If Jesus were to comment and say, as they ask the question, should we pay this tax? The tax, by the way, was an annual tax. Everyone paid it. It was it was a denarius. It was it was one day's wage. 
for every single person there in Israel. They were required by Rome to pay this. And they asked the question, should we pay the tax? Now, if Jesus says, pay the tax. If he says, pay the tax, then he certainly gains favor with Rome. But he loses favor with the people, the people of Israel. In fact, later on, after Jesus is raised from the dead and ascends on high in 70 A.D., the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed. Do you know, you know what largely led to that destruction? In the year 66 A.D., there was a rebellion that was led against paying this tax. This particular tax was so offensive to the Jews that in 66 A.D. they revolted against Rome. Rome put them down and destroyed the temple once and for all. So if Jesus says pay the tax, he will lose popularity with the people. But think about what is at stake if he says don't pay the tax. As soon as he says no, don't pay the tax, the law of God does not require the tax to be paid to Rome. Then the Herodians will make a beeline for Caesar and they will report that Jesus is leading a rebellion and the Romans will be forced to arrest him and execute him. So they develop this plan and in their minds, they think we've got him. We've got him. He has to answer either yes or no. And when he does, we've got him either way. And throughout history, we have seen unlikely alliances against the church of Christ all around. I experienced this this very week when a very religious person connected with this church uh, attempted to use a governmental office to stop our gospel ministry in the community. You say, well, what do you mean? This is an unlikely alliance. It is an unlikely alliance when someone who calls themselves a Christian tries to stop the gospel being preached. And there is no other conclusion that could be drawn than that professed believer. Their salvation is false. A true believer, a true follower of Christ would never try to damage the bride or his mission. Now, we can get caught up in our sin and we can we can bicker and fight. But the true mark, the lasting mark of a believer is that they will love God and love his people in the world for the glory of God. And we will grow in that. And if someone is not growing in that, but they are stagnant and they are going the other direction, the only conclusion that can be had is that they are lost. And that should not cause us to gang up on anyone in that situation. It should cause us to share Christ with them. You do realize that in the church, the, the local church gathered in this world, there will always be lost people as members of churches. You, do, you know that, right? Because we can't see the condition of someone's heart. We can try to do our best. We can try to try to listen and ask questions and walk with, talk with and try to ascertain if the person truly has a relationship with the Lord. But when it all comes down to it, there are some people that are so deceived that they can also deceive others. Only God knows who are truly his. And there will be times when we not intentionally. 
receive members who have a false profession of faith. There will always be wolves in among the sheep. We must pray and labor toward the end that God's church would be pure. Those who say that God is in their way, they will make unlikely alliances. Secondly, people that say that God is in their way will say whatever it takes. In verse 14, look at it. They came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true. We know that you teach the way of God truly. Did they? Did they believe what they said to Jesus? If they believed that he truly was teaching the truth, bringing the truth of God to them truly, then why would they not follow him? Why would they not lay down their religious garb and follow this one who has come as Messiah? See, they don't believe what they're saying. They are being insincere. In fact, Luke 20, verse 20, Luke's account of this same event, Luke says, so they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. There will be people who will pretend to be sincere and do it in the name of God. Sometimes this will come in the form of flattery. As it does here with Jesus. Jesus, we know you to be a man of truth. You're not afraid to say the truth. You say it in front of anybody, whoever's there. And they puff, they attempt to puff Jesus up. There will be those that will also do that here. Sometimes it comes in just flat out lies. People saying whatever it takes to get God out of their way will say sometimes just flat out lies. This is what they would later do at his trial, even though Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God what is God's. Later at his trial, they will say he was teaching that you should not pay the tax. And they just flat out lied. Sometimes I have the, the privilege, the pleasure to be out in public and to hear some things that I supposedly said or some things that I supposedly did. And often my response is, really? Sometimes there are things that I do say that I didn't intend to say, but you heard it that way. Sometimes there is evil motive and it is just a flat out lie. Anyone who's ever walked with the Lord and tried to serve him, follow him, it doesn't have to be a pastor. It can be anyone trying to lead and live for the Lord. Sometimes it's just a flat out lie. My response, though, and your response should be the response in Colossians chapter one, verses 24 through 26. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. The reality is when you live and lead for God, there will be those that will flatter. They will make up things. They will flat out lie and they will do it all in the name of God. They will say whatever it takes to get you because you represent God out of their way. 
We should not we should not complain about this. We should not cry or moan over this because Jesus told us this is what would happen. Jesus said that when we follow him, if they hated him, if they persecuted him, then they the world would also hate and persecute us all the more. And when the writer here in Colossians says, I am filling up what is lacking in the sacrifice of Christ, he is not saying that Christ some somehow was deficient. What he is saying is that they hate him to the point where they didn't get it all out and they will hate his followers as well. And so I say rejoice. Count it an honor to suffer for the cause of Christ. Third thing that people will do when God is in their way is they will set traps to turn others against you. They say to him in in verse 14, the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Does this not seem a little bit out of place? They just realized in verse 12 that Jesus was talking about them. They wanted to kill him, but they were afraid of the people. And now the question they ask is, should we pay taxes? Does that not seem a little out of place? You know, this whole IRS thing, I mean, is should we submit to that Jesus or not? See, the question was not really what they wanted to know. And I've already explained that to you. What they wanted was to trap him for him to say either, yes, pay the tax and lose the the favor of the people, lose his following. If he loses his following, they've won. They're thinking if he loses his following, he goes into obscurity and he's out of our hair and we don't have to worry about him. We get our kingdom back. But if he says, no, don't pay the tax, then Rome will arrest him and kill him. And we don't have the right to kill anyone. But they do. And we will use Rome to execute Jesus. They just knew they had him. Not so fast. See, they thought God was in the way. Because of that, they made unlikely alliances. They were willing to say or do anything, whether it was true or not. They would set traps and we'll see more to come. But what they didn't realize was, and what you need to realize today, is that God is never in the way. God is the way. There is no other way. What he says here is what Jesus does brilliantly as only someone who was truly God could do. When in verse 15, he says to them, why put me to the test? He knew their hypocrisy. Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin in the bunch, they would not have had this coin on them. Because they would not have so aligned themselves with Rome as to carry this Roman coin. So possibly it was someone of the Herodians that reached into their pocket and pulled one out. They brought one to him and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. In that culture, in that day, just because the coin with 
Caesar's picture on it was in your pocket didn't mean that it belonged to you. Because in the end, he still owned it. It would go back to him. It would have been easy for Jesus to point out who the coin belonged to. He takes the coin, he holds it up, and he says, whose inscription, whose likeness is this? Whose image is on the coin? Caesar's image was on the coin. He wants to point out, though, the not so obvious. And I would ask you the question, who do all people, including these who are trying to trap Jesus, who do all people belong to? Let me ask it another way. Whose image do they bear? Whose image is on every life? Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. It is a false dichotomy that says there are some things that belong to the government and there are some things that belong to God. Those two things are not opposed to one another. They are the same thing because what belongs to the government or to any other thing ultimately belongs to God. What does the government own that they did not receive from God? What do you own that you did not receive from God? This kind of teaching that says there are some things, this was not Jesus' point, that whatever belongs to the government, give to them. Whatever belongs to God, give to him. He was not saying that some things here, some things there. What he is saying is, it all belongs to God. The opposite of this, would it's what leads to this compartmentalizing of our lives. One of my pet peeves is to hear someone say something like, You shouldn't say that. You're in church. You ever heard that? You ever said that? Say something off color or tell something that you shouldn't tell? Oh, you shouldn't say that. You're in church. What is this but a building? What are we under right now other than sheetrock and metal and lumber? Wiring? This is not the church. When Jesus ascended on high, he promised them that the spirit, if he went away, the spirit would come and that the follower of Christ would become the temple of God. There is no compartmentalizing of our lives. You don't have a life that is one way Monday through Saturday and then changes to another life on Sunday. You have one life. It is either owned and lived toward God because he owns it or it is compartmentalized because you think you own it. Jesus point was God doesn't get in the way he is the way. Albert Moeller said it this way. We do not render unto Caesar because of our confidence in Caesar. We render unto Caesar what is Caesar's because we are committed with our lives and confidence and consciences to render unto God that which is God's. In other words, what he's saying is you and I will submit to the authorities that are placed over us, not because we fear Obama or the Democrats or the Republicans or anything like that. We will submit and we will pay taxes and we will obey laws because God owns it all and has appointed it all. 
And by submitting to them, we are ultimately submitting to him. When we live in rebellion to our government, it shows that we are ultimately rebelling against God. Now, there are exceptions when a government mandates that you go in ways and do things contrary to what the word of God says. Then the word of God, the law of God will trump that. We can and we should submit to governing authorities because they were placed over us by God himself. By rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's, we are rendering to God what is God's. If you are here today and you sort of feel like God gets in your way sometimes, if it weren't for this or that, you could just live life however you wanted to live, then I would tell you, you are living in a lie. God doesn't get in the way. God is the way. This is the whole crux of the gospel. The gospel is either God is in your way and you are rebelling against him and trying to rid him from your life or God is the way. And the aim of your life is to render to him what is rightfully his. You see, the Christian life is lived not from the the, the Perspective that we must do certain things in order for God to hold on to us and we can stay in his good graces by how we live. No, the gospel is that we live and regardless of when we sin or when we are not sinning. That the finished work of Christ holds us. See, that changes everything. We no longer serve and worship and attempt to grow in the Lord from this motivation of guilt. Instead, we serve out of gladness. We grow out of gladness. We worship out of gladness for what he has done for us. God is either in your way or he is the way. Today, there are some of you here today who you are on one side or the other. And I would challenge you today that if you know God is not in your way, he is he is the way for you, then rejoice. And in just a few minutes, when Ethan leads us and we sing at the end of this service, then sing out of gladness. When you come in here and we call the ushers to come forward and they pick up those little, little brown trays and they pass them back to you. Don't give out of guilt and compulsion. Well, if I don't give, somebody's going to see that and they'll think that I don't you know, care anything. So I got to give. I got to put something in the plate. You know, there are people that that will take some. They'll pull their wallet out. They'll pretend to have something in their hand. The plate goes by. They will drop nothing into the plate. What motivates that? What motivates that is fear and guilt. Fear of the people. When you come in, don't give out of guilt. Give out of gladness. When we open the word of God together, don't look at it as something we must endure and get through. I was so thrilled this morning on the way to church. We were saying to my son, are you sure you need to take your iPod into church today? He said, yes, dad, my Bible's on my iPod. Well, I thought, well, that's probably just an excuse, you know. You know, iPods, you know, they, you've got your Bible there, but you also have Angry Birds and Fruit Ninja and all this sort of thing, too. So I just figured that's what he was doing. And he said, no, dad, I took notes last week. He said, you want to see them? We're on the way to church. He spit my sermon back out to me. 
part of that might be because he's afraid of what we might do if he gets caught not paying attention. But I pray not. I pray that my son would love the Lord because of what God has done for him. How Christ died for him and took the wrath of God for him. And has been raised from the dead. And one day he will be raised from the dead again. And he will live forever around the throne of God worshiping him. I pray that that would be what drives his life. Not the other way around. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would take what I have said from your word and God, that you would pierce hearts with it. God, I don't need my ego to be puffed up and stroked today. God, what I need more than anything is to see you work for your glory. So, God, I pray as we sang, you are stronger. Sin is broken. Death has been crushed. God, I pray today that you would be stronger in this place. That you would shatter hard hearts. That you would pulverize them. God, that you would take the old heart of flesh out. God, that you would Give new hearts today. Ones that are filled with life that comes from you, able to respond to the gospel. And God, today I pray that people all across this room would turn from their sins and believe and trust that Christ is the only way. He's not in the way. He is the way, God. Lord, would you do it, God, for your glory and for our good so that more would become worshipers of the one true and living God. You are most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in you. So God, we ask, God, glorify yourself through us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.